If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Before we start, John, it's December. This is Discount December. We're going to give 10% discount on Patreon. And what you get for following us on Patreon is three things. Ad-free podcasts twice a week. You get two macroeconomic courses, not just one, two free. And also from January, I'm going to be answering questions once a fortnight. We're going to have an online macro session. And if you want to go up a level with us, you get a 10% discount for signing up on Patreon right now in December. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Good morning there. It is the podcast that's John just gently and gingerly pushing the microphone towards me, <sighs> making sure. By the way, we've got to tell you, it's very early. John and I usually don't do the podcast until it's late, late in the day. I've had and three because, coffees and already. And because we're backed up with work-wise, we he actually arrived here at 8 a.m. on a rollover. <laughs> he hasn't had a night's kip. Rare and go. Rare, Rare to go. go. So you are getting us at our best. <laughs> anyway, it's podcast time. We are delighted to be bringing you a podcast today from Silicon Valley, John. Oh, yes, We're indeed. going to be talking to Mike Fertig, who is a fantastically interesting entrepreneur, has seeded raised capital for, being on the board of run many, many companies and did what the holy grail for all those American companies is the exit. That's what they all talk about and unicorns and all. But we're going to talk about why innovation seems to be so fertile in the United States, new companies, new corporations, etc., and not so much here in Europe and what we can do in Europe over the coming 10 years to make sure that we actually get somewhere close to the American vibe. Yeah. And the reason we're doing this uh, as we come up towards Christmas is I think it's quite interesting to take stock 2020, right? Take stock of the pandemic, take stock of, we did the great resignation. Do you remember we did that the other yeah. week? You know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people leaving companies, a lot of people taking control of their own lives, a lot of people saying, you know what, I'm not really that sure I want to work in this place or these hours are in this sector. Or for somebody. Or for somebody. And what we've seen, not just in the States, but all over the West, 
has been a surge in new company formation mm. in the last 18 months. So people have used the pandemic to say, maybe I'll change my life. Maybe this is the wake-up call I needed. Maybe I was going through the motions for five or six years. Now I'm still young. I've got good ideas. That's the first thing. The second thing is possibly sitting at home during the pandemic yeah. has led a lot of people to think about innovating in their own lives. Also, so, the third thing would be the fact that tech allows you to work more remotely. And of course, tech uh, has allowed John to turn up here at 8 a.m. in the morning <laughs> into my home. Because, no, but seriously, in the past, we would have had to do this podcast in a studio. That's true. And yeah. spent huge amounts of money on renting the studio and all the kit and all that sort of stuff. And uh, that was just John's phone going to tell him to wake up. Yeah, but that was my alarm, actually. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about innovation in the round, John, because innovation is the essential fact of capitalist countries, right? This is how capitalist countries grow. Mm. And there's lots of talk about innovation, but very few people actually identify it, know what it actually is. I mean, at, at the end of the day, innovation means, means getting new ways, just new ways to apply kind of energy to create improbable things that catch on. Think about it, right? Yeah. So yeah, all yeah. these weird things, you think, you know, if, if, you, if you examine what innovation is, it's, it's not invention. It's not making something new. It's usually putting together two old things, which are improbable, and then actually creating something new. And that changes the world. So, and the other thing is that most innovators are not necessarily great geniuses. If you look at all the spinning jenny and all those things from the Industrial Revolution, they were kind of manufacturing technicians who yeah. were tinkering around the margins. So the idea is, what drives the economy? How is that going to change over the next few years? Why are the Americans, certainly Silicon Valley, ahead? And what can the rest of the Europeans do about it? Now, the interesting thing is, one of the fascinating concepts of innovation is how it's actually contagious. That what do you mean by that? Well, that it actually, it tends to go in little clusters. Mm. And once one person is innovative, lots of other people are innovative. One thing that has interests me, because if you think about Silicon Valley, what you get is you get a cluster of people, like-minded people, who start a business. That business then becomes successful. Those businesses seed other businesses. In fact, the employees of the original business take their chances and say, you know what, I can actually do this myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then they set up small businesses. And over time, what you get is you get a massive expansion of the original business. Now, the other night I was doing a gig for the Irish aviation leasing industry. Yes. Right? And again, what I was interested in is like, how come this business started in Ireland? How come it's doing really well in Ireland? And yes, there are tax treatments and yes, there's all this sort of things, but what else is going on? And what else is going on is the people. Because it's people that innovate. Mm. People take technology and they innovate. And what you see is there was a small company called GPA, Guinness Peat Aviation, which was based out of the Shannon free trading zone. Right. So Shannon Duty Free comes in in the 1960s, right? We put a free trading zone there. Some companies come in. Airline leasers come in in the 1980s. In the 1990s, this is a small business. But the people who worked for that original company, GPA, which is a fellow called Tony Ryan, who's the original Ryanair. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They get a taste for something. They get good at it. They also create the network. Because the thing about businesses, people do business with people they know. And people who do business with people they like. So you create your own little network. And then 
they spin off into other companies and then those companies spin off into other companies and maybe 10% of those companies, maybe 20% succeed. But after a generation or two, you have an industry. Yes. And that's what has happened to airlines. Fully formed industry with infrastructure and networks, the whole lot. And and, and the whole backup and the whole back office and and everything. Mm. And then they become global players out of a small, it's this idea from, you know, from small acorns, oaks grow, right? And it's the same thing in Silicon Valley. You know, somebody started it. That's what I always think. Somebody started it. And what you're seeing in the pandemic now is lots and lots of people are saying, I might change my life and I might look to do something else. And I also think, though, that there's, it feels like when I talk to my kids and stuff, there's a different attitude. Like Izzy said to me the other day that we're, as a generation, are going to be a hell of a lot more innovative, flexible and entrepreneurial. Well, can I ask, can you get Izzy to go up and wake up my young fella? Because I think there's two quite different. I'm not looking at entrepreneurial, flexible, get up and go. I'm looking at, well, I'm not getting out of bed. But anyway, but I take your point. I take your point. Anyway, it is an exciting topic, innovation, Mm. because it is the essential fact of economics, right? That economies grow when you put two things together to create an improbable other thing and that catches on. Yeah. I was reading about, do you know that great expression, the best things in sliced bread? <laughs> yeah. Right, that's a classic innovation. It's so classic. Oh, Mr. Brennan. Oh, Mr. Brennan, right? But it's so classic, it became part of our vernacular. That's yeah. the best things in sliced bread. And I thought to myself, who invented sliced bread? Right? <laughs> yeah, go on, tell us. Right, because... This is it, something I've never thought about before. Well, this is the way I think. <laughs> this, is like, like, this, this is the sort of thing I think. Like, what? How does sliced bread go? Because my dad used to say the best things in sliced bread. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And that referred to almost every, everything, right? Sliced bread, automatically pre-sliced bread to make uniform sandwiches. Think about it. That's what it was all about. Right. How do you make these sandwiches, right? And it was probably fairly obvious that sliced bread would have happened at a time when you've got lots and lots of mechanical little machines to do the slicing. Yeah. But why did it happen in America, number one? Why did it happen in 1928? And why did it happen? Yeah, not that long ago. And why did it happen in Missouri? Right. Because Missouri, again, these are not places you imagine, right? And again, it's down to the cussedness and weirdness of one individual. So think about this is an innovation. There's nothing, you're talking about bread, which humans have been eating for thousands of years, right? You're talking about knives, which humans have been making for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're talking about sliced bread that we never made before, okay? Which totally transformed the way people eat. Completely transformed. (laughs) Go on, who is this guy? Okay, the geezer is a guy called Otto Frederick Rottweather. Yeah. And he became (laughs) obsessed with, with, with sliced bread, but he wasn't a baker. Okay, right. so he was a jeweler in a place called St. Joseph, Missouri. Then he went back to Iowa. So he was from Iowa. Then he went back and he decided he was going to become sliced bread inventor. And he had all these patents for sliced bread, but they didn't, they couldn't work. And then he figured out the crucial thing for sliced bread was you needed to create an automatic packaging to package the bread airtight straight away so it wouldn't go stale. Right, so yes. That was the key. Yes. So this was his innovation. Right. right, was to create this thing. And of course, he was trying to pitch this to bakeries because he was a jeweler. He wasn't a baker. Mm. He had this mad idea, right? And of course, most bakeries thought, this guy doesn't know his onions. He's never been a yeah. baker. What does he know? Why would you and want to slice bread? One, yeah. And one baker in a place called Chilcot, Missouri said, a guy called Frank Bench was the baker. Right. And he says, I'll give you a chance. Go for it. 
And lo and behold, the first sliced bread, sliced pan, old Mr. Brennan, was made there. And this became the most transformative innovation of the late 1920s because it changed the way people ate. And the question is, why Missouri? Why 1928? And the answer is nobody really knows. That innovation happens in a way in which there's no way of predicting it. That it's just serendipitous. It's a certain person with a good idea. A certain person takes a risk. A certain person is prepared to finance it. Somebody is prepared to make the machine. And at the back of your head, you kind of think, there is no demand. This is the crazy thing. There was no demand for sliced bread until you came up with it. Yeah. So innovation creates its own demand. And this is why economists and a lot of people who think about the economy, I think, don't quite get this idea that innovation is the really exciting part of new economics. And I think we're going to relearn economics over the course of the next 20 or 30 years to put innovation right at the center of it. Now, let us go to talk about innovation to somebody who is innovating because one of the dilemmas for Europe is we are not innovating like the Americans. So we are importing American innovation. So when, for example, the Americans say, where is the European Google? Where is the European Facebook? Where is the European Apple? What they're actually saying to us is that you guys are not producing these companies. We are producing these companies. It gives the Americans a sort of a... It's a good point, actually. Yeah, it is, actually. Where are they? Because we have a bigger population. The European population is 440 million, right? Yeah. We are the biggest unified economy in the world. The European Union economy is bigger than China and America, if we take the whole thing. Right. And where are the Googles? Where are the Apples? Where are the Facebooks of Europe? You know, those, just naming those technologies that we all know. Mm. And, and I think it's probably time we try to answer that question. So let's go to the States to have a look at what an American innovator thinks is going on in America and not going on in Europe and how we rectify it. Mike Fertig has been involved in lots of companies, taking companies public. He's in Palo Alto. He's deep in the Silicon Valley firmament. And I want to talk about this type of capitalism which is the capitalism, the freewheeling capitalism of the United States. Mike, how are you, man? Good to see you. I'm so glad to see you, David. I'm so I'm such an admirer of yours with Kilkenny, Kilkenomics, and the Donkey Book Festival, and all, all that you do with the podcast. I'm a fan of yours. I'm glad to be part of your world this week. Brilliant. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about entrepreneurialism, innovation, the yeah. whole idea, how it how it works. Like you, you live in Palo Alto. You've been involved in innovation for years and setting up companies in the venture capital world. Tell me, in the VC world, because we have a dilemma in Ireland, which is the following. Mm. We don't have a vibrant venture capitalist community. If you have a good idea in this country, it's very, very difficult to get it seeded. I think we're like many European countries in that regard. So young entrepreneurs, young innovators are capitally constrained at a time when there is no constraint in capital in the world because interest rates are zero. So explain yeah. to me yeah. how the VC world works. Explain to you what's going on. Like a, like a pot of history, like the last 20 years or so, where you end up in a yeah. situation where the United States has all these unicorn companies and yeah. the Europeans yeah. don't have any or have very few. Very few. Yeah, so I, it's a very good question. It's a very powerful question because right now, this is where the action is, right? Silicon Valley as a metaphor, 
right? Yeah. Is where the action is in the global economy, right? There's kind of almost so nothing else going on apart from high tech and high tech growth in terms of what's the, what the alpha is for the future. As you like to say, it's just not that complicated. You got to get in that game, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to see growth. I think it was, um, is it John Anderson from Bally Gifford? Is, is that his name? Bailey Gifford, uh, yeah. Bally Gifford, the extraordinary Scottish investing house. He said, I read in the Financial Times uh, the other day, he said that the FTSE 100, now it's not a 21st century index of 21st century companies. It's not even a 20th century index of 20th century companies. It's a 19th century index of 19th century companies. So what's the problem? I will say one thing, and then I'll go back to your question sort of more seriously, which is that you know, the, the young Irish entrepreneur has a huge advantage in some ways over the, let's say, Italian entrepreneur in the sense that he or she speaks English and is very close culturally to the United States. So can get here with a good passport and we can do the job that is now being not done yeah. by the locals. So I think there's an advantage. But okay, so what's the story? Look, venture capital is, so apart from in, in the 30-year time frame, apart from maybe, you know, REITs or something like that, that, that people would point to, the most extraordinarily moving and, and evolving asset class of the last several decades. And it was a very tiny group of guys 30, 40 years ago in Silicon Valley who started doing this. It was a bunch of waspy guys, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who didn't let the Jews do it, didn't let the you know, African-Americans do it or South Asians or, or East Asians do it. And it was, a, it was a club. It was a club of 20, 30 firms, more or less, that did all the deals. And for a while, you could kind of be an idiot and succeed the way that was also true in investment banking, right? For, for a couple of decades as well. And then some of these extraordinary kind of casino like returns started to happen. And uh, there are some reasons why venture capital grew up in two places in America. The two places it grew up uh, chiefly are in Silicon Valley and in route 128, which is sort of outside Boston. And that has now come back as the global headquarters of biotech is now in kind of Cambridge, Massachusetts and Boston. And the, re- the reasons, you know, you had a concentration of universities. First of all, I think that the thing that, that seems to be the sine qua non of the Silicon Valley met- metaphor is you have to have great universities nearby. And those universities okay. have to include technical universities. So the liberal arts universities with strong technical programs or technical universities full stop. So MIT is a technical university. Harvard is a broad university with technical stuff. And then Stanford, of course, Berkeley, good places. Then you have to have probably a couple of companies that become kind of champion companies by hook or by crook. And they either get funded the way companies used to get funded through debt and lending and revenue and so forth, or they get funded through venture capital. And back in the day, the amounts of money were hilariously small. So I think Cisco, which at one point was worth something like $600 billion in the, in the great dot com, I think it only ever raised $2 million. And I think they never, ever spent it because wow. they wow. were able to get revenue. Right. I know these are these are kind of the, the heady, legendary days where you didn't have to raise a billion dollars to make $2 billion, but instead you could raise just a couple million. And so I think the fabulous returns, the very un, uneven, fabulous returns that you see in venture capital were very unusual in the asset class world at the time. They did, by the way, have prehistory in America. So the great work that's been done on this now, I think, suggests most strongly that the great prehistory of venture capital America as an asset class was the whaling industry out of New Bedford and Nantucket in the, yeah, about 200 years earlier, where you basically have a broad distribution of outcomes. You'd raise capital. There'd be people who had money. There'd be people who were allocating money. So wealthy individuals, allocators, the capitalists of the time. Yep. And then the ship captains and the crews who had their two or three or four year voyages in front of them. 
looking for, I guess, vermiceti and, and, and oil and all these yeah. things that the whales have in them, decimating the whale populations of the earth, unfortunately. But they would have a wide distribution of outcomes. They go out, they come back to port, and something like half of the journeys would, would prove net negatives. And once in a while, you'd have these fabulous 10 or 20x returns. And this was a kind of a taken together with the joint stock corporation, the, the, the innovations of corporate governance, this was a precursor for the risk capital culture that became necessary in America. So nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? You go out to see, see if you can get some whales, right? yeah. <laughs> come back. And there are some other sort of probably precedents in global history, maybe the East India Corporation going to get you know pepper from Java or something like yeah. that. But there was a culture of it. And then there was this idea that you could do the following thing. This is the important formulation. It takes a certain amount of money, capital, right, to build something difficult to build. And then if you nail it, if you're able to build that difficult thing, the margins are very, very high, 90%, 85%, 95% in the cases from biopharma, 80 plus percent. And so if you are able to, to sustain the time of R&D when there's no revenue yep. and get to the time when there is revenue, you can have a fabulous return. But so many of these companies die on the vine in between the alpha and the omega. So anyway, there's a, a cluster created around Massachusetts and, and Silicon Valley. And then things started to change very rapidly about 20 years ago, and then very rapidly 10 years ago. So what happened about 20 years ago? Suddenly about 20 years ago in the kind of dot-com-ish era, there was a, a proliferation of venture funds and the advent of the internet and free disk space and storage and all these things. And you had the, the cost of innovation collapse. So it went from 20, 30 million bucks to build something to and sell it over a lifetime as a product to 10 million. Right? And then 10 years ago, it became 2 million or half a million. Okay? So first of all, the cost of, of capital collapsed, the amount of capital required collapsed. And then secondly, the internet was born as a commercial opportunity. And so suddenly, the number of, op- of things you could do on the internet seemed to be much greater. And the returns were so much higher in Silicon Valley than in other parts of the economy that more and more people set up venture capitalist shops. So thousands proliferated about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Many of them collapsed after the dot-com bubble burst, which is understandable. But then enough of the companies that were born during that time, Amazon and so forth, became these remarkable, remarkable companies. Graduates of those companies went and started off their own companies. Some of them made enough money there that they could fund their new companies by themselves. That one of the major shifts happened in venture capital about 10, 15 years ago, which is this. It used to be that the 20, 30, 40 venture capital firms that were competing for your deals and then more were all getting at the ground floor. You needed a million dollars or $2 million. They could buy half or a third of your company for that small amount of money. And they got board seats and they got controls and all these different things. Well, that changed when entrepreneurs and graduates of these fabulously successful companies started their own companies because they didn't need your million yeah, they didn't bucks. need they needed, two or three million. They needed they, much more. Yeah. Right. So they could do the first two or three million themselves. Exactly. Then they needed 10 later. But by then you couldn't buy half the company for three million bucks. You could buy for maybe 10 million or you could buy a third of the company for 10 million. So, and then by the way, new guys showed up and said, hey, we don't even need to be on your board of directors because we're really nice guys and so forth. And so the, the power shifted to the entrepreneurs. By the way, that phenomenon has not yet happened in Europe. So what's happened in other parts of the world is some of the other parts of the world have followed this phenomenon. But in Europe, still, the weighted average of the power, let's say, the authorities lies with the investing class, 
such as yes. there is one in Europe. And so the quality of capital that you have in Europe, maybe econ-free Ireland, is different in the sense that they're they're going to you know be tougher on your neck. They're going to be sort of a little bit tougher, a little harder rules. So they're not going to play like the Americans who are a little bit more profounder, let's say. Okay. So then, then what happens is enough of us who have enough success from various uh, ventures, thank God, start our own venture capital funds, and we're even nicer to you. <laughs> okay. And so, and so. By, by the way, in, you don't realize, that, Mike, you don't realize that this is an entirely a pitch for you to buy this podcast. Uh, take a small amount of capital, <laughs> have a board seat. We'll give you a board seat in the basement, and away we go. I'm just writing up the contract and now. Then, well, what I wonder, what John I wonder, and I will, John and I will head off to the, we'll head off to Italy for a few months, <laughs> and then we'll be back. That's good. <laughs> Certainly you can podcast Italy. There's no disadvantage. But let's go back to the VC because what really interests me, Mike, is the fact that in Europe and in Ireland, good ideas find it hard to find capital. In the United States, good yeah. and bad ideas, because there's always going to be things that don't work, find capital. So I think one of the questions I get most often, I get it from Europeans versus Latin Americans, Africans, let's say Asians is, isn't it true that the problem is a lack of capital? Okay. And, and I guess one of the, one of the problems is lack of capital, but I don't think the problem begins there. I think the, the problem is basically that Europe has still criminalized entrepreneurship, right? The attitude culturally is that you must avoid failure rather than you must reach for success. Adventurism is scarce. And of course, Europe is, is a manifold place with manifold people and, and so forth and cultures in it. But it's overall uh, an older society and a much more conservative society than, say, the United States or other parts of the world. And it's a very comfortable society, whether you, you attribute that to the kind of the generally socialist policies or the, the wealth per capita or those, are, those two things travel together or, uh, you know, the history of families who want, who want their children to, to go into safe uh, industries, whatever it is, the professions. Uh, the culture is still one of chiefly fear of failure rather than ambition for success. Number two, the law still criminalizes entrepreneurship in a lot of places. If In many places in Europe, if you've ever been on the board of a company that goes bankrupt, you can no longer serve on the board of another company for some period of time, speaking of purgatory, right? Uh, now, by the way, I'm not advocating that anyone want to be on a board of directors. It's not fun. I'm on a few and I don't like to be on very many at all. But certainly part of investing yeah. is, for many people, is governance, right? So I want to be on your board if I'm going to invest, maybe, says, says the venture capitalist. But if you are afraid of failure because the failure scenario has so much consequence for your future economic life, then you may be much more reluctant to invest. Also, I think that the capitalist class, the investor class in Europe is still chiefly trained if you want to be a little bit more tactical, still chiefly trained in the disciplines and excellences of what you might call the green eye shades people. Who so are they? Who are they? Show me your balance sheet and I will evaluate your company. Well, I invest in PowerPoints. By the way, I invest before there are PowerPoints, right? So it's like I meet David and I'm like, wow, you're smart and you really know your stuff and you sound ambitious and you're giving me a PhD in your field and it's fucking amazing to be around you. May I please invest in your company, right? And you say, well, wait, wait, what happened? Because I say, yeah, because this is a, a marvelous adventure you're beginning, and it would be fantastic to be supportive if I can be, for example. Whereas if you demand a financial forecast for a company that has no product, except in certain fields, then it can be a quixotic goal and it can prevent you from investing. So I think that's the problem. There's another problem, which is that the 
entrepreneurial class in Europe has been reduced, I think, in, in number culturally for one reason. You go to Accenture, maybe, you go to an accounting firm as a hot job in the UK, which is you know, bananas, or you go or a consulting job. You won't have or, any kickback on this podcast from that that statement. Right, right. But so your some of your best and brightest are becoming auditors, right? Which is which is bananas. And then by the way, you have some great successes out of Central Europe in particular, I, I dare say, that have learned exactly the wrong lesson. So you have the culture of entrepreneurship in much of Central Europe. Yep. Western Central Europe, not Eastern Central Europe, is a culture of private business school graduates who are marketers copying and pasting American innovation for the European markets. And so the best engineers go to BMW and the best marketers may start a company, but it's not like the best engineers are starting a company. They're going to BMW. And the innovation is simply copy what you saw in America, put it in Central Europe and see if it works. And I think that culture of we are going to copycat, proudly copycat American companies is part of what has also taken the, the, the spark of European innovation sort of in the wrong direction, dare I say, and one towards localization rather than innovation. Last, last statement I'll say, which is that the action, if there's action in Europe, and there is action in Europe, the action in Europe is in the Baltics and the Nordics, and I think increasingly to the East, Bucharest, Serbia, right, Belgrade, there's action there. As the wealth there accretes, you'll see more companies coming out of there. But here's what they figured out in Estonia, which punches way above its weight in yes, entrepreneurship. It does. They figure out their local market's just, it's just too small, right? It's just too small. We're going to ignore our local market, which the French don't do, the Irish don't do, the Germans don't do. And they say, look, we're going to ignore our market. We're going to go straight to America. We're going to use our current place as a development center for R&D, for our stuff. We're going to sell immediately in the United States. And that's how we're going to become large. And I think that when you back out to 10,000 feet and you look at the global market of, of the internet, there's basically only two places you want to sell to, basically, United States and China. It's very hard to sell to China. So sell to the United States until you conquer the United States, then go to other places. Germany is 100 million people. If you include the Swiss and the Austrians, which they don't like it when you do, but if you include them as 100 million, right? Ireland's 5 million. It's the size of Alabama. Right? <laughs> and so sell America first, right? And the GDP of Ireland's what? Colorado, Minnesota size, right? So not very, very big compared yeah, to the United States. So I think Ireland actually is one of those countries that could really punch above its weight much more in this area because you have the technical jobs, because the tax policy and so forth. But I think still culturally, it's just, it's just so bad in Western Europe. It's so bad in Western Europe that I think that it's, it's a combination of dilettante behavior, of criminalized entrepreneurship, and cultural fear of fear of failure, which is greater than ambition for success, that I think will, I think it's a permanent, I think it's a permanent handicap. I don't think it's going to change. Well, you know, it's it's fascinating because I, I think when you list all those things, I think many people listening will recognize one, two, or maybe all of them. Mm -hmm. Again, you're absolutely right in 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 terms of where the smarter graduates are being sucked into. It is those established professional firms. It's the idea of don't particularly take any risks. And in actual fact, you'll find it, I think somebody from your background, you'll find it amazing. And it's it's that, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings in Ireland are obsessed with talking about buying a house, not setting up their own gig and renting. So it's So you've got all these cultural things, but, and this is where I want to take this conversation, I happen to believe that 
you're right, the Scandinavians and the Baltics have seemed to be able to crack this. And it's very, very clear. You mentioned Serbia, you mentioned Bucharest. Anybody in the tech world will tell you the Serbs are by far the most entrepreneurial of all Europeans, which comes, oh, well. as, a, which comes as a shock to many of us, okay? Because the Serbs are an unusual crowd, but they're hustlers and, they're, uh, and they've, they've been on the margin for so long, for the last, you know, since the war and everything. However, let me come back to, to, to this small place. I also have a hunch that if we can get things right here, if we can become open to people like yourself, to American capital, to allow American capital, venture capital, so risk capital, to to swim in our waters, that we can attract the talent and the corporations, when I say corporations, and the people here to actually work. Because someplace in Europe is going to get it right. Someplace in Europe is going to be a halfway house between Silicon Valley and old Europe. Totally. And it could be here. It's a good point. Ireland has dominated the process for the multinationals, right? Yeah. Through, through intelligent tax policy, through competitive tax policy, through competitive governance policy, and by fighting the EU when necessary and, and so forth, uh, Ireland has cornered the market for the multinational transition into Europe and so forth. And now with data privacy, it's a safe harbor. Uh, Ireland is a place for, for, for American companies that need to do business in Europe. And of course, there's there's a little bit of geographic proximity advantage, and there's a huge language advantage, and there's cultural proximity, um, which is huge. I agree with that. Now, that that's actually a very important point. I, I actually believe that you know there's sort of no there's no American population that is more proud of its heritage than the Irish American population, <laughs> and I, I'm guessing that you both enjoy that and get a laugh about it sometimes, as the nature of things happens in the world. Yeah. But there's certainly can't deny that they're proud, right? And and certainly there's a population of Irish Americans who are extremely wealthy, by the way, and and manage funds, by the way. And so you have uh, both a kind of broad and particular or peculiar, right, set of cultural affiliations and interests. So I do think if you kind of made it possible, if you laid out the carpet, I think it would be very, very easy. But the instinct, the European instinct, by the way, is always to look for the government to, to do something about it. And this is one of those areas where you're the economist, right? You kind of got to get the government out of the way. And so you have to get the government to take barriers down. So I think these are, the, the good news about money, and there are downsides of money, but the good news about money is it finds a path once the barriers are removed. And I think Ireland knows knows how to do it. It's built, it's built up the muscles to do it. By the way, sort of up close, at close range, I find Irish graduates very entrepreneurial, right? But they're entrepreneurial about things like, I want to buy a house, right? Rather than I want to start a company. And they may feel a little bit hopeless about starting a company. Or the very entrepreneurial ones may find themselves in New York or in San Francisco, or they may go to London now that there's Brexit or something. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I do think that you have also enough good universities in Ireland that you could could have a very competitive set of outcomes if you wanted to. There's nothing intrinsic about Ireland that's holding the country back in this way, except its size, right? It's so small, right? Just a yeah. small number of people. But I mean, there's the size, small, you know, small. All, all small countries have always, you know, Mike, been terrorized by geography and size. If you look at the small countries over the last 20 years, have been very successful. We've been successful. The Finns were successful for a while. The Danes, the Norwegians, you mentioned the Estonians. The Israelis have been highly successful. The Singaporeans, the Hong Kongers. Small countries have actually done extremely well in globalization because what globalization allows us to do, 
and I don't think sometimes we appreciate that, is we can play with the big boys without being big. Let's say the tyranny of geography is not as tyrannical when you're allowed into the market. And it's just a question of whether you go into the market or you don't. And certain countries have embraced this and other countries haven't. Don't you have, um, right, Stripe is sort of the champion of Ireland yeah, it's right the now. Champion. Right? And it's in actual the- fact, uh, Patrick Collison was on, uh, I saw him on Twitter the other day saying he believes that European unicorns will be a thing in the next five or six years. He's quite confident to take the opposite view yourself. He thinks there's a lot of talent. It's just a matter of getting a couple of things right and these companies will take off. That's his sense. By the way, I want to make sure that your listeners hear me say this. Many of my peers, many of my compatriots, financially, geographically, professionally, believe that Europe is one of the big fertile grounds for the next set of of growth patterns and unicorn creations uh, for the next 10 or 20 years. I am in the minority, I believe, on this topic. I believe that Europe is not going to be, Western Europe is not going to be a locus of unicorn exceptionalism. And let me let me emphasize that word exceptionalism. So when you have to take a position as an investor or as a macro predictor, usually the rising tide lifts all boats. And so the question is, to, to be useful as a predictor, it's not useful to say that there will be more unicorns in Europe than there were in the past. I think that the answer that, that question is obviously there will be. The question is, how many more relative to the other places you could allocate your capital? So I believe Africa will dominate Europe in the unicorn creation and wealth creation and wealth opportunity creation as compared to Europe. Uh, no question, right? So I'm not an investor in Africa. I would love to learn how to be. I'm not that person. I think that if you're a person who has exposure to Africa, knowledge of Africa and expertise in Africa and the ways and ins and outs of, of, of all those places there in Africa that also carry a lot more political risk, for example, than, as compared to Europe, but great growth opportunity, young populations, the opportunity to leapfrog technical barriers and so forth. I would bet on Africa all, t- all the time over Western Europe. I believe that basically Israel and Europe will have the same number of unicorns. That's, that's, that's a way of stating to you how little I think of, the, of Europe's technology growth future. But by the way, the Collison brothers might be Ireland's best bet or metaphorically their best bet in the sense that sometimes the ecosystems of new areas, for example, I believe Texas will grow as a startup place and San Diego will grow as a startup place and Florida will grow as a startup place. Silicon Valley will still remain the top in America, but there'll be a broader base. So the pyramid will broaden is the metaphor I would use as Silicon Valley continues to rise, other places rise faster. But all these places that I'm mentioning in America benefited by having one or two very breakout companies and then the founders and their diaspora of graduates of those founders made more companies there. So I believe you'll have guys like the Collisons. I don't know them to to do this. I don't know them well. I've met Patrick once. What they could easily do is bring some of that mojo back to Dublin or wherever else in Ireland. Limerick, where they're from. Double down. Limerick and Limerick and, 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 and very quickly an ecosystem could build around them. So just before you go, you just said something there that we just lost you, but I, I want to come back to. So you said that you think that Europe, Western Europe, which has a population of 400 million, will probably have the same amount of unicorn companies. These are companies that are defined by having a value of more than a billion dollars yeah. as a tiny country like Israel. Why do you think that? So right now, if you look at billion plus exits per year, exits, not valuations, but exits per right. year. Okay, so yeah. Israel is sort of one or two per year and Europe is kind of like two or three per year-ish. And about half of the ones in Europe are in the Nordics and Baltics. So if you look at the, the state of play today and then the rate of growth 
in Israel versus Europe, I think you're probably going to see Israel and Western Europe be roughly on par. So that's an astonishing statement, right? Mm -hmm. And it's astonishingly bad news for Europe. And by the way, Europe is a place of political significance, but in terms of an internet-based market, it's what, 27 different places with 25 or 30 different countries, uh, languages rather. And so it's very, very hard to consider it a market. So the, the advantage you have of being there is not a, an advantage of market access. Germany relative to Poland, yes, but Germany relative to America, forget it, right? So it's not an innovative market access. You have to believe that both capital and human capital of Europe are advantages. And unfortunately, what happens is, as you pointed out, capital is not yet an advantage. I believe human capital is not yet an advantage because it's not being routed the right way. And third, they are distracted by their local markets, partly because the government tells them to be. You should sell to the French. You are in France. The cabinet is in Paris. We should be selling to the French. Whereas countries like Estonia and Israel have, have effectively sworn off their local markets and gone straight to America. And that has been the formula of success, for success for most of the companies that have come out of there that have become huge. So are we to conclude, Mike, that you believe that Europeans really have got to get their, our act together or else we're not going to be at the, at the races in the next 20, 20 years? I think there's a huge set of deficits, yes, especially in most of the European countries, Western European countries we're talking about. And deregulation, getting out of the way, asking less of the government are the keys to... There's nothing intrinsically human about entrepreneurship in one place that's going to be superior to another place. But there is some culture. Culture is soft. It's hard to overcome culture. But the hard rules of criminalizing entrepreneurship, of regulating up, firing people, making it very difficult to fire people. And by the way, it's not useful to say, as they did in France, you can fire people easily up to whatever, 40 or 50 employees. Because guess what? That's a great reason if you believe you're going to have 500 employees to start your company somewhere else, right? If you're doing a, if you're doing a small business, like a, a small home building business, you may never get above 50 employees. And that's the kind of company you're going to engender and encourage with such a policy. But you will not encourage high growth company formation that requires 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 employees within five, 10 years, which is where that remarkable ambition, remarkable growth happens. So you kind of have to put yourself somewhere else. So I'm an optimist. And so I believe that if some of these changes were made, Europe would see its, its better future as it has in the places that have revealed these opportunities. For example, Sweden, for example, yeah. Estonians. There has been some effort of this type. A little bit of luck, a little bit of elbow grease, and a lot of hard policy decisions. But you cannot have simultaneously a fundamentally socialist idea about capital and human capital allocation and Silicon Valley. Those are not compatible concepts. Let us leave it there. Mike, a joy to talk to you, and I will talk to you very soon. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jeez, Mike is a bit down on the old Europeans, isn't he? He is, he is, he is. I think a little bit unfairly. Perhaps I get the point, as you mentioned earlier, where is the Googles and the Facebooks and all the rest? The European versions of it. Yeah. But you can say, you know, Spotify is a European company. Well, I was going to say there are other companies. So there is innovation in Europe. But what he's saying is that where you get the innovation, it seems to be in the Baltic countries, Mm. in Scandinavia, where you're getting a lot of the tech buzz is actually in the Balkans, in Romania in Serbia. And he's identifying France, Germany, Britain, Spain, all the old countries, which which had huge industrial might and heft, yeah. as not necessarily being at the races. And what he's saying is it's got a, it's attitudinal as well as everything else, right? That there is an attitude problem that, for example, when a family does well, they want to create professionals out of their kids. Yes. And he's saying in the United States, it's a more resplendent, freewheeling idea that, you know, risk-taking is still a thing in the United States. My sense is that these things change over time. Yeah. And that Europe will, you know, when I say Europe, if we go back to what I was saying at the top about innovation, you can't preordain innovation. You can't say, go into a room and create something. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. do that. Here's a blank piece of paper. Here's a blank piece of paper and we've got this target and we want 10 companies every yeah. year and we want 10 products or whatever. That's not how it works. It works from the ground up. But I mean, it is definitely a problem with the European Union that we do not seem to be creating those companies at the same pace at the, that the Americans you, are creating. You, you know, you talk about attitude. Attitude is instilled. Yeah. And it's that instilled in early education. You mentioned before about this whole idea of the difference between Anglo-Saxon capitalism and Rhineland capitalism. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like how much of that, just explain that first of all, and then how much of that do you think contributes to to the lack of innovation? Well, I think that, I think that first of all, I wouldn't say we have a lack of innovation, but we have a lack of innovation evident in consumer products, right? Mm in consumer-facing products, which we all know. So, for example, there's a huge amount of innovation going on in German industry to try and shift it from carbon-based to non-carbon-based, for example. But to come back to answer your question on Rhineland capitalism versus what Anglo-Saxon or shareholder capitalism. So shareholder capitalism is this idea that the way in which companies raise money is they issue shares to the public. The public give them the money, the 
companies give the public shares, that's how they raise money, and that ultimately an indicator of success, not the only one, mm. is the share price, how the share price is doing, right? The Germans have largely avoided that. Germans and Italians, yeah. right? Because they believe it's destabilizing, because yeah. that leads to endemic short-termism, because it be- it leads to gutting the asset to enrich the shareholders. And it's and not they, human focused either. And they also believe that there are stakeholders. Yes. That in a business you have the owners, you have the workers, you have the customers, you have the advertisers, you have the retail network. So that a business is much more like a several tentacle organism mm. that has all these stakeholders. And that if you bias your entire management structure simply to look after the concerns of the owners, then you denigrate all the other stakeholders. And there's a huge amount to that, right? Because workers get denigrated, suppliers get denigrated. So, for example, the reason that most, there's a thing called Mittelstand in Germany, which is the small family companies are the backbone of German industry. Like the SMEs. Like the SMEs here. And those are loath to issue shares because issuing shares gives control to somebody else. So they're family companies. So just like Western European model, right, is the banks lend money to the corporate institution, which is the family, GmbH, which is German for limited company, right? They work together. They look after the shareholders. They negotiate wages. Every year in Germany is a thing called the IG Metall, which is the huge metal trade union. Right. And they sit down with all the employers in the rural land and they say, okay, guys, we want a 3% pay increase across the board for all our members. And they sit down and they negotiate it. And over time, they come up with this baseline wage level for the country. Right. So everything's done in an organized, negotiated fashion. The Japanese operate the same way, right? The Americans do not operate the same way. The German Mittelstand are very secretive. Nobody really knows them. They're not very flashy. But they have created world-beating companies over two or three generations in manufacturing. Right. That's not to say they don't have the problems coming up. And the Swiss Mittelstand are, are very much like this too. But what they do is they say that of the stakeholders, each one has equal importance. So therefore you don't have this obsession with unicorns, right? It's also the thing that Europeans are less interested in money. Like, it's really simple. Yeah, yeah, You know, like, sure. Europeans want to go on holidays, we want to chill out, we want to have coffees, we want to read fucking Balzac and Dante and Joyce. Seriously, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, we want yeah. to go to the Sleaford Mods. We want to, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, we want to live. The height of culture. The height of culture. We want to live and we want to criticise and we want to be politically engaged and we want to do all those things. You know, sometimes if you go to Silicon Valley, it is like, do you ever remember Logan's Run, the movie? Yes. Where they killed everyone over the age of 35. Yeah. Right? It has that sort of Logan's Run feel that everyone looks beautiful and they're all obsessed with money and they're all obsessed with changing the world and they're tech bros. And there's a facileness right. about about that. And there's a sort of a unidimensional where, you know, to, to have a proper well-structured society, you need all the bits and you need the failures. And if you surround yourself, as Silicon Valley does, with the winners, you're obsessed yeah, with the winners. Yeah, yeah. What about the losers? The loser story is always how I've always thought it's sport. Because if you think about the Olympic champion, right? Everyone who gets to the Olympics has put in an enormous amount of work. And the loser story 
is as interesting as the winner's story. In fact, maybe more interesting. So I think that in a society that elevates winning, and America does that more than anything else, you will have this sort of hero worship yeah. of the brilliant and the shiny things, whether they are individuals or whether they're products or they're companies. And in Europe, you have a much more, how would I describe it? It's a, it's a much more concrete understanding of how societies work, that basically everybody can't be a winner. And the civilized societies look after the losers. And the civilized societies realize that in every family, in every bunch of mates, in every town, in every community, there's going to be people who get to the top and people who don't. So I would say that the European view, while we might not necessarily be creating a stable of winners, we are creating a nicer society. And maybe that's what counts. Jonas Crimbo, here's the sales pitch. You can get, can you imagine anything better than this? <laughs> you can get 12 months Patreon subscription to the Dave McQueen's podcast, which is two podcasts ad-free every week. You get two macroeconomic courses. The economic courses I give in Trinity, more or less online. Which are humdingers. Which are humdingers, okay, which we actually won a prize. Indeed. We won a prize. Indeed. Swati Teacher of the Year. But we get all the reading lists. You know the reading lists I go on about? All the reading lists, the lecture notes, videos, the whole thing. And you get these, we're going to introduce this year, an online Q&A. Once a fortnight, I'm going to answer the questions that people have. This is all on Patreon. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah, no, it will be really good. And it'll, it'll create a, a huge community of people. And this is all on Patreon. And you get a 10% discount if you sign up in December. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And if you sign up now to Patreon, you get 12 months for the price of 11 months for an annual subscription. And, or you can look at it by getting 10% off for the whole thing. And the key thing is it's not just the podcast. It's the learning, it's the community, it's the engagement. It's all together. We're going to go up a level yeah. in 2022. Do you know what as well? It's a bloody brilliant Christmas present. You're absolutely right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.